not those of KJOZ, its management, staff, or owners. Topics heard on KJOZ talk programs could be on any subject, conversation, or lifestyle, and in no way reflect the views, opinions, or position of KJOZ Radio, its host, staff management, or owners. Welcome to Legally Speaking with Music and Music. I'm your host, Joanne Music, and I'm here in the studio with John Denholm this afternoon. How are you, John? I'm good, Joanne. How are you? I'm great. Uh, we've got a lot of exciting stuff to talk about. We're here on a uh, weekly, hour-long show uh, to discuss mainly criminal justice issues here in Houston and Harris County. Uh, but as a law firm over at Music and Music, we handle criminal cases, family cases, a little bit of uh, civil matters, but uh, mainly criminal and family. So we're going to see if we can't uh, dispel some rumors, shed some light, and just see what's going on out there. So uh, we've got a lot on tap for today. Uh, I want to ask John, though, first to kind of give us a little introduction about yourself so our uh, listeners know who we're talking to. Well, I'm John Denholm. I'm a licensed attorney in the state of Texas. been licensed for eight years. Prior to that, I was with Harris County Sheriff's Office, where I retired after... 27 and a half years. I'm an Army veteran, joined right out of high school, worked in Colleen PD for a few years, and then came down here to the Houston area. Uh, raised my family up in spring and have had a pretty good time down here. Uh, when I retired, I started practicing law and uh, was hired by the Musics and have been their associate. Since we only have three lawyers, two partners and associate, I say I'm the senior associate. <laughs> he is definitely our senior associate. <laughs> um, just to kind of give our listeners a little background, we met uh, when John was with the Sheriff's Department uh, heading up the Homicide Division. He was participating in a lot of the uh, on-call um, officer shooting cases where Earl and I also participated as defense attorneys. He participated as a, um, a supervisor on the scene, and um, that's where we first met, right? Yeah, the way it would work is usually um, on the officer-involved shootings, and especially if there was a fatality, the lieutenant would make the scene. And I oftentimes would take the shooter's statement, and at that time they were represented by counsel, the musics, and I was also going to law school at the time, so never missing a chance to look for a future employment. <laughs> One time after I got done with the statement, I said, hey, uh, you guys know I'm going to law school, right? And they said they did not, and they told me to come see them after I got out of school. I did, and that was eight years ago, and I can say I've had a pretty good time, no complaints. 
Great. Well, we love having you. You've been a blessing to us and our practice, uh, and we hope you'll stick around a lot longer. I plan on it. And just uh, for the listeners out there, okay, this is our first time on live radio, um, so if we have any bumps or hitches or miss any cues, uh, just bear with us. We'll, we'll get it sorted out eventually. Yeah, we'll, we'll work with it. Um, hopefully our producers here will keep us on track. And they're giving me the thumbs up, so I know they've got us. Um, Earl would have been with us today, Earl Music, um, but he's out with uh, bronchitis, so uh, just the two of us today. And um, I want to get started talking about some of the uh, big issues here in town lately. Uh, just this week, Texas Monthly uh, came out with an article uh, it sort of uh, profiling the Harris County District Attorney's Office, uh, and specifically Devin Anderson. She's our elected district attorney that handles uh, Harris County in Houston. She's been in office just three years, uh, but as reported, she's been involved in several major controversial issues. Um, so. Uh, I know John and I have talked about these issues in other forums, uh, whether that be on our blogs, um, on t TV, on the Harris County Criminal Lawyers Association television program, uh, Reasonable Doubt. Um, but I want to kind of recap some of that and, and discuss those just a little bit so we can catch our listeners up to date and um, kind of see what we think about what's going on here in Harris County. Is that all right with you, John? Yeah, that'd be fine. So... Texas Monthly talked about um, an issue that really had my blood boiling, uh, the jailing of a rape victim. Just to kind of go back and give us a little history here, uh, the Harris County District Attorney's Office was prosecuting a person they believed to be a serial rapist. Uh, during his trial, a victim who was testifying about having been brutally raped uh, suffered a tremendous uh, psychotic episode having to deal with all of that. She had some uh, mental issues, uh, possibly some bipolar, schizophrenia issues, things like that. Um, and then during her testimony, she had a severe mental breakdown and uh, got to the point where she just said, I can't do this, I can't do it, um, and she and was just really having a tough time. The court recessed, and she was actually checked into the Harris County uh, psychiatric facilities and um, where she served where she stayed about 10 days receiving psychiatric help following that the district attorney's office issued or requested a witness bond a um, order from the court to take her into custody they took her into custody and placed her in the Harris County Jail so I want to kind of start there uh, you know John this is uh, something that really troubled me you have a lady who's been raped and victimized who's then placed in jail. What's going on with that? I know you worked in the, for the Sheriff's Department, you've worked in the jail, you've supervised over at the jail and out on the street. Is this something that's typical? Do we jail rape victims? No. Uh, in fact, most of the witness bonds where you want to hold a material witness in jail, those were very infrequent occurrences. And part of the problem on this deal, aside from putting somebody that just had a psychotic episode in custody, is when you put someone in jail, you have to associate it with a case. So in this case, it's associated with a sexual assault. Normally, in the old gym system, people would be classified as a D or as a D for defendant, or N for non-party. And uh, if you don't catch that, you just see that they're booked in as sexual assault. 
So when they so get booked in, you know, under classification system, you put like certain types of felons on this floor, you put certain types of mental issues on this floor, certain behaviors on this floor, and uh, it goes toward having as peaceful a jail system as you can. So in this case, um, booked in really as a witness, right. but really appeared to be more like a defendant, somebody accused or charged with sexual assault. Right. And that's where really uh, you need to do some follow-up. I mean, if you're going to put a witness in jail on some type of paper, you need to make sure that they get housed appropriately. And they do have cells, single cells with TVs, where you can house people. I mean, out of all those beds over there, I mean, remember, we've got the uh, 701 jail, which is at 701 San Jacinto, and then we've got the new facility at 1200 Baker, relatively new. And there are thousands of beds, and it's not that difficult to just get a single bunk cell and get her one with a TV. I mean, she's a witness, not a crook, and put her in there and make sure she is getting seen by mental health professionals and being treated appropriately. And, and as I understand it in this case, uh, the prosecutor's office has, you know, come out and said they did everything that they, that they could. They did everything that they thought was right at the time. And at the time, they thought it was best that they uh, incarcerate this person for her safety and to secure a conviction in that case. Um, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. Maybe it wasn't the best idea to um, incarcerate her pending the resolution of the trial. But at the same time, what I'm hearing from you is, had even if you are going to incarcerate that person, there are steps that could have been taken to, to ensure her safety. Sure. And it's, uh, to me, this, this all gets back to accountability. You know, you've got a prosecutor that puts somebody in jail and a witness in jail. All you got to do is pick up the phone. And if you don't know who to call, find somebody that does. Each court's got two deputy sheriffs. And people have to understand, especially the older guys, which uh, the people who work in courts, they've all been around a while. Everybody started in detentions. That's the jail. You know, and when you promote, you would go back to the jail. When I made sergeant, I went to the jail because that's the new guy job. And when I made lieutenant, I went back to the jail because that's the new guy job. And they're all familiar with the system. They're familiar with classification. So if the prosecutor truly didn't know what to do or something, it's just like, hey, I want to make sure this gal's been taken care of. So you ask the bailiff, who would I call over there? You know, and he can just look on the department phone roster and say, here's a supervisor in classification. Give him a call, make sure she's housed appropriately. But this thing seems like uh, she just got swallowed up in both bureaucracies. Yeah, it definitely does. First swallowed up by the prosecutor's office, uh, you know, jail her, let's hold her, keep her, uh, you know, keep her under our thumb till we're done with the trial, uh, but then kind of swallowed up uh, by the jail as well. Yes. Uh, you know, from what I've heard in defense of the jail, I don't think they knew any different. Right. You've got a lot of inexperienced people, and when somebody comes back, I don't know if she was brought over separately or put on what we call the chain where you have a, a chain where the prisoners are cuffed together and brought through the tunnel from the courthouse to the jail. But, you know, if she's down there being seen by uh, relatively new people and they just, you know, look, hey, here's sexual assault, here's the paperwork, you know, let's run her through inmate processing to get her property and dress her out. And then they just housed her with the other uh, inmates. 
Yeah. Well, I want to uh, remind our listeners that uh, this is a call-in show. We do have the ability to take calls, answer your calls on the air. So if you want to reach out to us, you can reach out to us at 281-447-1114. That's KJOZ, 880 AM, 281-447-1114. You can also hit up uh, us over on Twitter at at Joanne Music, at J-O-A-N-N-E-M-U-S-I-C-K, or at Music Legal, M-U-S-I-C-K-L-E-G-A-L. Um, now, just getting kind of back to the goings-on here in Harris County, um, you know, the I started out talking about this Texas Monthly article. Not only did they talk about the jailing of the rape victim, uh, sort of came out after that, that this really isn't the first time that's happened. Um, there were other times when rape victims have been jailed, and in fact, an additional time where a rape victim was kind of forgotten about and left in jail for about 30 days longer than necessary. Yeah. How does that happen? I really don't understand how somebody would be left in the system after their ATW date comes up. And ATW means all the way. And when you run an inmate, if you go to the sheriff's website and you put in inmate information, you can get what they call the up and out date, where it'll show when they're supposed to be released. And normally what happened is you would get a printout on the floor saying, hey, here's the ATW list. And you'd get those people up and uh, take them down to get them dressed out, to give them their property back, and then you'd have... Uh, they used to let them out at midnight. Now I think it's around 7 a.m., what they'd call kick-out. And they'd put them all in the sally port, and then they'd raise those uh, overhead garage doors and, boom, send send them all out. It's like a, a mass exodus. Just let turn them all loose. out in the 1200 block of Commerce Street. But you would get, I mean, it's, it's all computer system, and you would get the ATW list, and you get these people sent out. So I don't, I don't know how that happens. Well, in... And let me shed some a little bit of light on what I heard uh, in relation to this particular case. Um, she was not, this particular uh, rape victim was not an inmate of the Harris County Jail, yeah. but she was brought on a bench warrant out of a state jail facility where she was serving time uh, for, I believe, a minor drug case. Yeah. So, um, and maybe this might shed some light on that up and out date there um, because she's not an inmate within the Harris County Jail would they necessarily know her out date for the state jail no not necessarily okay. at least as the system that I used to work under and that was eight years ago so there's possibility that you know they had her in there on a state hold like when you pick somebody up on a blue warrant which is a parole violation and, uh, you know, basically you're just detaining them until state parole come gets them. If it's uh, a state jail case, they may have just looked at that as this is a state prisoner and missed it that way. Yeah, and I, th I kind of think that's what happened. Um, because she was brought in from a state jail facility, it's most, most likely that the sheriff's department really didn't know when she's supposed to be released. She was brought in on a hold specifically by the district attorney's office. Again, yeah. we have the district attorney's office requesting to hold this person into custody. They just forgot to say, oh, we're done, you can let her go now. And again, that's a, a failure in the system that if you put holds on people, you need to, you know, check back on that stuff. You can't just 
fire and forget for lack of a better term. You need to have some system in place that where you can check on these people. Yeah, and so, uh, you know, as the prosecutor, I, you know, in this particular instance, I place the fault with the prosecutor's office. Yeah. You know, if they're going to request somebody be brought and hold, and well, brought in and held for right. their purposes, right. when they're finished with their purposes, they ought to be letting somebody know, hey, we're done, you can let this person go now. You know, they, uh, they've got a thing called SETSEC, which is Southeast Tri uh, Texas Crime Information Computer. And what it is is where all the smaller agencies would put the local traffic warrants in. And so you're working out at the sheriff's office at Clay Road, and you'd pick up somebody on a Pasadena warrant. When you would run their driver's license, you'd get a hit, show you have two open out Pasadena Municipal Court. Well, part of the deal when you entered uh, people into Setsik was you had to come pick them up. And normally you'd give them eight hours. So you'd pick somebody up at Clay Road and you'd call Pasadena and say, we've got two opens on this person and it's, you know, 3 a.m. And they would send a patrol car out. But if you didn't pick them up, then they could actually have their uh, access to that system removed for 30 days because it's part of the deal that if you want us to uh, set up the system where we get hits on your warrant so you can collect the money, you got to go get them. Well, same thing if you're putting holds on prisoners. You need to have some setup where, okay, if the DA is going to put a hold on somebody and then let them just basically rot there, you know, I would just say, you know what, that's a privilege. Show me in the statute where you can just put the hold. I mean, you've got some paper on them, but they're entitled to, make a bond or get a lawyer or some type of personal recognizance after X number of days. But if you're going to put the hold on somebody, you need to make sure that there's a drop-dead date. To me, that's what I would do is I'd sit here and say, well, when does this hold expire? Or this hold has to be renewed every 10 days or it automatically expires. There's lots of things you can do. Well, if you think about it, uh, the juvenile system, uh, very, very similarly, if there's a child taken into custody accused of some type of delinquent conduct, you know, like a criminal offense, um, every 10 days that child's required to go back in front of a judge to see, do we need to keep holding this kid in custody? Right. Sometimes it's kind of a pain that the kid has to, you know, come back every mm -hmm. 10 days, but you know what? It also makes sure you don't forget about the kid. Yeah, and that's a perfect example. You know, they should not have an unlimited hold, especially on a witness deal. Exactly. So. Uh, you know, you talk a little bit about, um, you know, SETSIC. That's what, we, you know, we always call it. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, municipal warrants, things like that. Just to help our listeners out a little bit, uh, give us an idea how that works, you know, in, in the greater Houston area. You know, you've got Pasadena. You've got, um, you know, well, Klein Forest Independent yeah. School District. You have, you know, 70, 80 police agencies that could be, you know, have a warrant for somebody, I, but this j the jail is the central repository for everyone. I actually think uh, last time they checked, there's like 120, 130 agencies. It might even be more than that because now the legislature in their alleged infinite wisdom has even allowed mud districts to create law enforcement positions in that. And uh, normally what it is is that when... The smaller agencies, when somebody fails to appear, they just make a computer entry. And when you talk about fail to appear, is that usually like for a ticket or something? Right, on a traffic ticket where you have that on or before date. Like you have to appear on or before 
June the 10th. On June 11th, you have failed to appear. That's a separate offense. Now they can issue a warrant for the speeding ticket and for the fail to appear. So that's two warrants. They punch it in, and they normally would, uh, when you would call to confirm, they'd tell you how much the fine was because on the Class Cs, you have the option to post what's called a cash forfeiture bond where you put the money up, like, say, for a fail to appear and speeding, maybe four or $500. Then if you don't appear again, the city just keeps the money and says, okay, we're even. You got a conviction on that. Um, so all the little agencies would enter it in. Whenever you stop somebody, you would run their driver's license. And you're and, just talking about general law enforcement. Right. Um, so when we, just so, you know, our listeners are clear, um, you know, municipal, Okay, yeah, municipal, uh, sorry about that. There's one of those glitches we talked about That's coming up. First time radio. First time radio. Um, when when the police officer is, you know, going to ar- maybe pull somebody over on traffic, they might have warrants from another right. municipality. Right. Yeah, they might have warrants. So what you do is you check everybody's driver's license when you stop them. And you, if you get a hit, then first thing you want to do is see, does Pasadena want to confirm? If they don't confirm the warrant, then you don't worry about it. Now, the higher misdemeanors like DWI, stuff like that, those are all county warrants, and they're held by, they're actually held at the sheriff's office. Of course, felonies are also held at the sheriff's office. When you run somebody, you can look at uh, when you get a hit and it says confirm Pasadena PD, you know that's that's a municipal warrant. If it says confirm uh, sheriff's office, could be misdemeanor or felony, but if it says confirm and will extradite, that's normally when you get your NCIC hits because you only put felonies in NCIC. And that's the National Crime Database. Correct. All right. Well, uh, we're going to take a break here, and uh, we'll be right back with you. Take 
And we are back. This is Joanne Music with Legally Speaking with Music and Music uh, here today with John Denholm. I want to remind you guys that we are taking your calls at 281-447-1114. Help you out with some uh, legal issues, some legal advice. See if we can't uh, answer some of your questions here today. So give us a call. Um, I want to get back to what we were talking about just before the break there, John. Um, I know we kind of got off a little into what generally happens in a traffic stop, um, but I really want to go back to some of this stuff that's happening downtown. Uh, we've got, uh, you know, Texas Monthly reporting on the district attorney's office. We've got um, all stations here locally, all news stations reporting on Precinct 4 um, and the destruction of evidence. I know you spoke at length about that last week, so uh, on the... Uh, HCCLA Reasonable Doubt Show. Uh, so I want to get some more information from you about that. What's going on over at Precinct 4? I don't, I don't know. To me, it's, uh, again, a lot of these problems, whether any of the, of the elected officials ever want to admit it 
or not can always be traced back to supervision. And there's an old saying about the reason you pull a logging chain is because you can't push one. And whoever is over that agency, whether it's Precinct 4, whether it's the district attorney's office, they set the tone for the office. Well, and so to lose 21,000 pieces of evidence or, or to have it destroyed without complying with the statutes, that tells me somebody's dropped the ball. And it's not just the guy doing it. Well, and that's what I want to talk about here. I want to back up just a little bit and give our listeners a uh, sort of recap into what's going on. Earlier this year, uh, Constable Mark Herman says that he discovered that one of his employees was systematically destroying evidence from the Precinct 4 Constable's Office evidence room, Mm -hmm. Uh, apparently without court order and without any supervision. Uh, Turns out, apparently, a lot of that evidence belonged to open pending cases. Uh, Now, he says he reported that to the district attorney's office uh, earlier this year, around February or so, Uh, but it was not until just last month, August, that this information came to light from the district attorney's office, and really only because, I think it was ABC News broke a story about it. Um, So, as I understand it, uh, a couple weeks ago, a prosecutor is getting ready to try a case, a dope case, and, um, you know, is trying to make a last-ditch plea bargain with the defendant and his attorney, and said, you know, look, we'll, we'll cut the deal, uh, you know, we'll give you less time if you'll just plead guilty and avoid this trial. Turns out they didn't have any evidence to go forward in trial because it had been destroyed by Precinct 4. How does that happen? How does the, uh, well, first of all, let me ask you this. What's supposed to happen with evidence that's over in the Precinct 4 constable's office? Well, the evidence, if it's admitted into evidence in the court, of course, it remains in the custody of the court reporter. But what happens is, like, you make a traffic stop and you arrest somebody for carrying a pistol and maybe they've got a little bit of weed or a gram of meth or something, that evidence gets booked into the property room. And that'd be over at Precinct 4? Right. Okay. So you'd book the evidence into the property room, and it should be tagged and cataloged and noted in the offense report. Then, when the case is called for trial, they will normally have the arresting officer bring the evidence to court, and he will be the one that the evidence is admitted uh, before the court through. So if the case is pled out where you no longer need the evidence, then there should be a disposition slip uh, generated. And the way we used to do that in the sheriff's office was they had a system set up where they would routinely look through these cases and they'd see like, okay, this pistol case you filed last year shows it's disposed. And we'd get a thing that'd say, please verify the status of this case and sign off yes or no whether it can be destroyed. So you'd get over on a computer, run it up, make sure, yes, indeed, it's been uh, disposed of. There's no need to hold on to it. There's no pending appeal at the 14th court or the first court. So you'd sign off on that, and it'd go back through channels, and then the stuff would be destroyed. And... uh, Items that have some type of monetary value that are not contraband. Of course, drugs and illegal weapons and that are contraband. And 
we had a policy that we never uh, auctioned firearms because nobody wanted the bad press on a murder or something where they bought the gun at a sheriff's sale. But as far as TVs, bicycles, stuff like that, that was either unclaimed or it was recovered stolen property and you never could ascertain the owner, that stuff's supposed to go down to purchasing. And a lot of people don't know, but uh, sheriffs, or Harris County had an online auction. I think, I'm pretty sure it's still going on. The first floor down there at 601 Lockwood, they got a lot of this property, and you could go online and make bids. And after, it's almost like eBay, after X number of hours, the bid uh, expires, you win the bid, you can go down there and pick up the property. So and we sell everything from cars, you know, to stolen, uh, stolen property that nobody wanted. So if property is no longer needed, because of, you know, criminal case is already disposed of. Yeah. Um, you can't ascertain the rightful owner, or maybe the rightful owner doesn't want it back, or, you know, what have you. Um, the government actually sells a lot of that property, try to recoup some money, save sure. taxpayer money, that sort of thing. Right. Um, but in this case, it sounds like that wasn't done. Sounds like everything was just incinerated. How, it, it, how does that happen? It, it sounds like somebody was, and you know, this is just speculation, but it sounds like somebody was told to clean out that property. And that just goes toward this whole divided type of law enforcement we have in the county where uh, we don't build adequate facilities for what's really going on. I mean, when the, the Precinct 4 constables first started getting big into patrolling in the 70s, Think back to what uh, North and Northwest Harris County was. You know, 1960 was four lanes. Alding Westfield was two lanes. You had to wait for the train to go uh, to cross 1960 before you could get from Humble to <laughs> I-45. I uh, waited on that train right. many a time. <laughs> right. Toll roads hadn't been built, no overpass there. So anyways, they... Uh, the county has grown tremendously. You know, when I came here in 1981, it was 2.2 million. Now it's like 4.5 million. And District 1, which was a sheriff's station out in the northwest part of the county, and the constable's office, they're still in the same building. It's still at 6831 Cypress Wood. When you think about going from 20 or 30 patrol deputies to a couple hundred, where do you stuff all the property, you know? Yeah. So in a way... I mean, I, I kind of feel for the guy who uh, they're putting this all on. It's like, well, you've given me an impossible task. It's like this, uh, this studio we're broadcasting from, and we want to put property for a year in here. You know, it's going to just be hanging in there and, and bulging and stuff like that. And it's like, you know, then you start looking at the stuff, and while this case was disposed, you know, a couple years ago, phone number's no good. I can't get a hold of the owner. What am I going to do with it? Well, I know what you're supposed to do with it. Right. But again, when you're dealing with humans, sometimes they're like water, and they're going to take the easiest route. Well, And, and so they figure just throw it away, and nobody will miss it. Well, and that makes sense. And I don't really even have a problem with, uh, you know, the constable's office cleaning house, getting yeah. rid of evidence that's been hanging around that's of no longer that's no longer of any yeah. value. Where I have the biggest problem is that they destroyed evidence it from from pending criminal cases, right. and that, then didn't even tell anybody about it. The yeah. state, the prosecutor, has an obligation and a duty 
um, both ethically and legally to notify the defendant and his attorney if evidence is missing. Sure. And, and that, they didn't do it. No, and that's the other huge problem. Like I said, they, they want to, you know, make the story about the deputy. And, oh, oh, my God, the district attorney's office is just shocked that they found out and we're going to launch an investigation. But the bottom line is they knew about this, you know. Well, uh, the district attorney admitted that in February she knew about it. Constable Herman says he informed the district attorney early on. Yet they withheld this information from their prosecutors until it appears they couldn't contain it. It's not that they had resolved it. It's not that they had been given out what are called Brady notices of exculpatory, favorable, or impeachment evidence. It's just basically we can't keep the lid on this anymore, so now we're going to comply with our duties. And, and, and that's just it. It, it does seem like the, the district attorney sat on this you know i think i think the constable's office you know hate to say it they did the right thing they notified yeah devin anderson said you know here's the problem all this evidence was destroyed uh, but then you have devin anderson admitting she didn't really tell anybody else mm -hmm. she assigned it to her uh, public integrity division to investigate yeah. but outside of that small division didn't tell anybody else in the district attorney's office so they're not notifying defendants they're not complying with their obligations and it's real easy to say as the line prosecutor i didn't know and maybe they didn't but their boss sure did and that's a failure to supervise it's a failure to keep your uh employees informed it's it's a failure to properly administer justice in harris county well and it goes toward you set the tone if the highest reaches of the administration uh, you know, they they suppress this from the defense. If they don't abide by their ethical duties, how do you expect the lower members of the organization to? And that's exactly it, John. We'll come back to that. I want to take a call right now. Welcome. Yeah, hello. Um, I think it's, um, you know, quite a different matter that uh, things were suppressed. Uh, there, there may have been an even greater violation in that trials may have been held without evidence or with fake evidence, number one. And number two, it occurs to me that there are people that are in jail right now that have been convicted under these questionable circumstances, and what kind of redress do they have? And you're exactly right. Now, I have not heard anything about fake evidence, as you said, but questionable evidence, uh, trials, um, and or plea bargains. Um, I, I can't really say that there were any trials that occurred where there was missing evidence because at the trial itself, that evidence would have had to have been uh, elicited and admitted into evidence for that trial to go forward. But what we see happening and what we've, um, we've understood, what we've seen, is that prosecutors didn't know the evidence was destroyed their boss knew, mm -hmm. but they may yeah. not have known. Um, the defense yeah. attorney sure didn't know. So everybody believed, look, the state can make this case if we go to trial. So let's, you know, save some time. Let's save some resources. Let's cut a deal. Um, they ended up entering a plea bargain, 
taking some time, uh, either you know, spending time in jail, spending time in prison, yeah. Uh, yeah. where the state could have never made the case in the first place. And that's exactly what the law is there to prevent. Um, you know, if the state cannot make their case, it doesn't matter if the defendant is guilty or not. If the state cannot meet their burden, it's a not guilty and the person yeah. doesn't go to jail. But that's exactly what we're seeing here is we've got a lot of people in jail, um, you know, in, in hundreds of cases where that evidence mm -hmm. may have been destroyed before they ever even, you know, entered their plea bargain or whatnot. And those cases are all going to have to be addressed. Uh, it's going to cost massive amounts of taxpayer dollars. We're looking at now a writ system, uh, actual innocence claims and or Brady violations, that type thing. But those yeah. cases are, have the potential of being reopened. Right. And I understand that the cases that are dropped, um, I, I, I look at reasonable doubt, I understand that the cases that were dropped uh, are not going to be dismissed altogether, that there's going to be some sort of a hold pending eventual resolution of this matter. And, well, I uh, think... It, I think you're talking about two different things here. There, when you say yeah, the cases that were dropped, there have been over 100 cases already dismissed. Now, yeah. that means that the prosecutor has come forward, signed a dismissal, and told the court, we are no longer going to prosecute this case because we don't have the evidence. Those no, cases they be, are... They can't be expunged. They can't be expunged, well, I think. No, that's a whole different issue now, too. What, what happens once that dismissal is in place, that person's free to go, that case is over. Now, yeah. whether or not that can be expunged is a, is a different issue. The DA's office, as I understand it, is taking the position today that yeah. they are not agreeing to an expunction. And the expunction statute, that's the expunction for our, our listeners who may not know, is where you can have your records erased and removed. Under the yeah. expunction statute, typically you have to either prove there was no probable cause for the arrest in the first place or that the statute of limitations has expired and there's been no conviction. So the DA's office has taken the position that there was probable cause at the time this person was arrested. They just can't prove it now. So they're not agreeing to the expunction under the, you know, before the statute of limitations expires. Most well, of these how cases could it, are... How could, it, how could it ever be proved? Well, being proved, yeah, yeah, and, and there's two different issues there. Whether the state can prove the case and whether there was probable cause to arrest in the first place. So the expunction statute looks at whether or not there was probable cause for the arrest in the very, fir in the very first instance. So let's say there was a traffic stop. And during that traffic stop, an officer sees uh, a you know, crack pipe sitting in the center console. That's yeah. probable cause for the arrest. There's a yeah. likelihood that criminal activity is afoot and there's likely there's a reason to believe this particular person, you know, is is right. the person involved. So that's all right. it takes to get into the arrest, to get the charge filed. If that did not exist, you could have an expunction. Where that exists, you've got to win the case in order to get that expunction before the statute of limitation expires. But well, I want to yeah, Go ahead. I was just going to say, I want to thank you for the call, though. Is, is, does that answer your question? Um, as much as I think can be hopeful at, at, at this juncture, but I, I have one more quick question. Sure. And if, if, I don't, if I don't have enough money for, um, for both a bail bondsman and an attorney, can an attorney get me out of jail? If you don't. And what an attorney? 
if you don't have enough money for a lawyer and a bondsman, can the lawyer yeah. get you out of jail? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think I understand your question. Let's uh, let's just say you're charged with a possession of marijuana case in Harris County, yeah. and uh-huh. there's a you know thousand dollar bond, but you can't pay uh-huh. the bondsman the fee to get out, and you can't post the thousand uh, dollars, but you can maybe scrape together enough money to get an attorney involved. That yeah. attorney can go to court with you and ask the court to release you on a personal recognizance bond where you no longer have to pay a bondsman, but that would really be the only way the attorney is going to be able to keep you out of jail. And that would be enough, but how often is that ever done? You know, it is so rare, and you said you follow reasonable doubt. You know that yeah. answer. Um, <laughs> you I didn't know, know it was going to be a quiz. Yeah, no, we we've been talking about that for twenty years now. Um, the Harris County has traditionally refused yeah. to grant personal recognizance bonds. That's you know a bond that where somebody doesn't have to pay to get out of jail, but they are released on their promise to reappear in court. Um, sure. The the county today is facing a federal lawsuit over in Judge Rosenthal's court, Federal Southern District of Texas District Court. Mm-hmm. The Harris yeah. County uh, judges are being sued be- for their for the way they administer the bond schedule and the lack of personal recognizance bonds. So I think we're going to see a lot of changes coming. I think it's going to yeah. take this federal oversight, but for the past 20 years, it just hasn't happened. I will say. There have been occasions, so I don't want to paint just such a broad brush. Uh, You know, it's a big problem, but there are occasions. I mean, I've I've gone into court and asked the judge, you know, I have this particular client. Here's the circumstances. Would you grant a PR bond? And it's been granted. Those are just few and far between. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks for calling in. Something a lot of people don't realize is that under the statutes, the, a law enforcement officer can issue a citation for a Class A or B misdemeanor. Technically, that if you're arrested for DWI, they can take you down to the station, obtain your breath specimen or your blood, but then they could write you a citation and release you if uh, someone comes and gets you on an intoxication offense, but like on a theft or marijuana or something, just release you on your own recognizance. No different than when you get a ticket for speeding. And they've done that in Travis County for years because they understand why do we want to clog up the jail with some of these folks. I mean, seriously, I understand if someone is a transient, you know, you stop a guy from Tennessee for DWI and uh, get ready to break. Okay. Anyway, you stop a guy from Tennessee for DWI and you do want to get a bond and ensure he's going to appear so he doesn't skip. But when you've got somebody who's lived in Houston for 35 years, has a good job, got a good family, they're not going anywhere. So why do you want to incarcerate them, clog the system, uh, just to make the bond company some money? Well, and that's what I want to talk about. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more about bonds and personal recognizance and what's going on here over in federal court. But we're going to take a quick break. Remember to give us a call if you have any questions, 281-447-1114.
And we are back, legally speaking, with Music and Music. I'm here in the studio. This is Joanne Music here in the studio today with and John, John Denholm. Denholm. Uh, we're missing our partner in crime, Earl Music. He's out today with a little bronchitis, but he'll hopefully be with us next week. Um, we've had some great discussion today. We were talking just before the break about uh, bonds and personal recognizance bonds. Um, and John, you started to tell us a little bit about uh, what I, th I think you were describing as what I call the Sight and Release Program. Yeah, I'm talking about... I don't see why Harris County doesn't issue the citations on the Class A, B misdemeanors. Well, and would I, you be surprised to know that Devin Anderson's gone on record to say it's a technological problem? Their computers just can't handle it? Well, and that raises the question, given the millions of dollars in seizure funds that the law enforcement agencies and the district attorney's office have at their disposal, why can't they update the computer system? I suspect I mean, they just don't want to. You know, unfortunately, sometimes the seizure fund, it's kind of like these are for the toys. And to me, it should be for the nuts and bolts. It's all about the administration of justice. It's all about what's doing best. Well, you know those t those seizure funds, when you say they're for the toys, uh, just to let our listeners in on a little bit, you know the DA's office, district attorney's office, used a significant portion of their funds to put in an indoor shooting range uh, that shoots these uh, fun little toy guns that uh, are a CO2 cartridge, and they have a video play, and they can put themselves into a situation, and they can play shoot or don't shoot um, so that their investigators can have a little training and so they can play with the grand jury. What do you think about that? Well, again, this goes to what is the purpose of the seizure funds and how important is it that we go get the, the grand juries over to, quote, our side, which opens up a whole different thing about uh, whether the district attorney's office has become too closely aligned with law enforcement and forgot that their job really is they're the lawyer representing the state of Texas and the people are the state of Texas. And um, is that the best thing for everybody, including the taxpayers, that we spend the money on this? Or is the best thing for the taxpayers to get a system in place where we can eliminate a lot of the inmates running in and out of the Harris County Jail which cost, you know, 40 or $50 a day for everyone, which uh, result in lawsuits. You know, the more crowded a jail is, the more you have health conditions become an issue, the more you have force becomes an issue because and people have to understand, you do use force in a jail. A jail, uh, the only difference between police in the street and police in the jail is that for the most part the inmates are all sober and they can't yell Billy and have their brother-in-law run off the porch to help. <laughs> but, you know, you're not dealing with uh, a daycare. You're dealing a lot of times, especially some of the gang tanks where these repeat offenders are, you know, they're hard cases. And every now and then you have to use force to get compliance with the rules. And everybody uh, up to the United States Supreme Court has understood that. Well, and right along those same lines, wouldn't it make sense then that we would not, if we're, we, we do have violent offenders in jail, Absolutely. no doubt, Absolutely. no doubt. 
so why wouldn't we want to spend more time and resources on those violent offenders and get those nonviolent offenders out of there? And that sight and release program is the perfect means. Nonviolent, low-level, first offenders, you know, mes- misdemeanor par- uh, marijuana cases, misdemeanor shoplifting cases. Why are those people sitting in jail? And again, by reducing the population, there's more space. With more space, there's less conflict. With less conflict, there's less lawsuits. With less lawsuits, there's less payout. And it's a win-win situation using citations on AB. And if the only reason is some computer problem, then why hasn't uh, she been down at the the commissioner's court saying, I need money for this? I mean, that's the thing. I haven't seen any of that. And, of course, a lot goes on, you know, back back room, out of sight. But, again, what do we spend the money on? We've got all these millions of dollars. What are we spending the money on? Well, yeah, and a lot of those millions of dollars are just sitting there in funds growing, um, you know, on whatever interest rate they're getting these days, which is probably not all that great. But it's money that's sitting there growing that could be used perhaps a little bit better to get, you know, get these people out of jail, uh, update the computer system if that's a big problem, um, and implement the site and release program. Just like a ticket when you're you're speeding, you're accused of running a stop sign, uh, you know, small amount of marijuana, uh, misdemeanor shoplifting, the police officer could, under the law in the state of Texas, simply write you a ticket. It's a summons to appear in court. You sign that. You promise to appear show up to court and you take care of your case. If you don't show up, just like a traffic ticket, a warrant can issue for your arrest. I've often wondered why a law enforcement agency just doesn't call their bluff and just write a citation and have them say, well, we're not going to prosecute this when the law allows for that. And that's a great idea. Here you've got, uh, you know, the tail wagging the dog. Uh, You've got the district attorney saying, we don't want you to do it this way, even though you have the ability to do it, officer. Don't do it because we're not going to prosecute them unless you arrest them and hold them in custody. Right. And the legislature decided this was the best thing, which is why they passed the law allowing it. Well, and, and like I said, that's it's not a brand new law either. It's been around about no. seven years now. So, uh, you know, one of the good things that our legislature has done to, to try to help counties, help the overcrowding, uh, you know, created a law that allowed for citations and release on these misdemeanor, low-level, nonviolent offenses, but yet Harris County will not implement or use that system. Yep. Well, I want to thank our listeners for the past hour. This has been a great uh, initial uh, session for Legally Speaking with Music and Music. Uh, myself, uh, Joanne Music, John Denholm, will be back here uh, almost every week. Uh, long as we don't have trial or something and hopefully John, uh, earl will be with us again next week and uh, we'll go from there keep in mind tweet us call us facebook us we'll be happy to answer your questions until next week i'm joanne music and this is legally speaking with music and music Living in a lonely world, he took the midnight train Just a city boy Born and raised in South Detroit He took the midnight train
Share the night it goes. 